0: You're listening to the Today's Family Lawyer podcast, the leading source of daily news and insight for family law practitioners in England and Wales. Sign up to our free weekly newsletter at todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk and subscribe to hear all the latest news and views from across the family law sector. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.
1: Hello and welcome along to the latest Today's Family Lawyer podcast. Today I'm joined by Derek Parsons. Derek is senior associate at RWK Goodman, a London-based firm although you're based in Southampton you were saying Derek. That's right. And you're an international child law specialist and the topic of today's discussion is child law and child abduction which I, I say hesitantly because I can't imagine it's a particularly popular topic for discussion when it comes to podcasts, but here we are anyway. It's it's lovely to have you on the podcast, Eric. Thanks so much for joining. Yeah, pleasure to be here, David. It's a really challenging subject, which is why I, I hesitated to say it, but let's start out with a little bit about yourself, please, because this is a, a really interesting area of law to specialise in.
2: Well, I'm a a solicitor, a senior associate, as you said, at RWK Goodman. I've been practising family law for over 30 years. Since 1993, I've been involved with international child abduction work uh, in some form or other. And actually, strangely, we're talking in January, which traditionally becomes a very busy time for international child abduction people go to see their extended families in other countries for Christmas and then decide they don't want to come back, uh, which is uh, then causes problems for the left behind parent. So yeah, I, I do international child work. We do relocation, so um, parents wanting to return often to their home country need to have the permission of the court if they can't get the permission of the other parent. and um, And we just keep uh, keep plodding away at anything with an international element, really. Um, nowadays, cross-border relationships or marriages, or you know, we are really in a global village. Well, let's dive right into that then. So, what is the
1: main law that governs international child law? We, we, we chatted before. We, we're talking about the Hague Convention, really, aren't we?
2: Yeah, yeah. The Hague Convention is a in, is an international treaty. Um, that's been around since 1980, and it's to protect children from being unilaterally removed from their uh, normal home, or as we would call it, the habitual residence. Interesting, when it first was written out, the idea would be that it would be usually fathers taking out of spite children from their mothers and removing them. But in fact, most of the time, It's mothers removing the children, going home often to their extended family. Uh, And so um, it's completely different to what was envisaged. However, it covers 103 countries in the world. And any of those 103 countries that require the assistance of another country, another member country can apply uh, and ask for help. Uh, And in, in England, that's done by the International Child Abduction and Custody Unit in London. And then they will instruct people like me to either find children or they will recommend me to represent the parents who've done the abducting. You
1: say you've been doing this line of work for a number of years.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Presumably,
1: things have changed quite significantly over that time. What what kind of changes have, have happened? I mean, I'm thinking about Brexit, which is very recent, obviously. But over that period of time, what, what are the major changes that you've seen happen around this space?
2: Well, the big change is our Brexit because we used to have the Hague Convention but there was also a European Convention that applied to the EU that uh, was slightly more restrictive shall we say for allowing children to uh, remain in the country where they've been taken. But uh, Brexit means we've left the European Convention and we now solely deal with the Hague I think the biggest change I've noticed, I would say there's a lot more possibility of staying where you are now you, uh, than you used to be. The The Hague Convention is a very restrictive, procedural, legalistic treaty, doesn't deal with what's the best for the child. It's about which country were they living in at the time of the alleged wrongful removal. And we'll send them back to there if we find it was wrongful. Nowadays, the welfare their issues, I think, uh, are coming back into it. So there's more options for parents to argue they shouldn't be returned. But that's a personal view. I don't think the courts would necessarily accept that.
1: And you mentioned the fact that the Hague Convention covers 103 countries. What would happen if you're dealing with a country that's, that's outside of the Hague Convention?
2: Well, if I start with saying what happens if they're in the in the Hague, because it's easier to show the difference. Um, so, if somebody was coming, say, from France to England to uh, visit their parents, and then they didn't go back, the the left behind parent in France would make a reference to the central authority in France, who would then contact the central authority in England, who would then instruct somebody like me to then get English orders returning. The children to France if that's appropriate. Uh, in a non-Hague country you aren't afforded that uh, simplicity so if, um, if somebody came from England to another non-Hague country you would have to go to that country and make applications under domestic law there uh, and that can be quite difficult because there's not, apart from funding issues, uh, because legal aid isn't available in every country, um, you've got the complexity. So, for example, in Italy, you could make an application, but it could take two years to resolve. Wow. Uh, um, and not much better in Greece. So, But other countries are a lot quicker. Um, if the child is being brought from a non-Hague country into England, then strangely, the English courts will still have to be applied to, but they will adopt... The Hague approach, so they're much more used to that. Uh, But if you get an English order here saying the child needs to be returned to England, you still have to go to that other country and ask to enforce the order. And of course, it doesn't have any legal binding to it in the other country, so it's just persuasive. So you still got to go to a a foreign court and then deal with however that's dealt. So it is—it's a lot more risky, a lot more complicated.
1: And presumably the success rate reduces significantly.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and that can be for any country you're in, really. You've got the cultural issues. You've got the system issues, in in particularly in the non-Hagues. Cultural approaches to how children should be looked after can differ to the westernised version that, that we subscribe to.
1: That's an interesting point, isn't it? What are some of the examples that you can share around why children are taken from their habitual residence into another country and the plan then is for them to stay?
2: It's very common that, first off, you have a relationship breakdown in the in the other country. And so what happens is, generally for the mother, but not exclusively, generally for the mother, their support network is, is here in England, say. So they want to come home and get that support. But the reasons why they leave are are as as varied as why every couple divorces. Yeah, you know, there's going to be issues relating to that. That's the easy part, if you like, but we, why they're coming is that we can see that. But actually, what they should have done is applied in their own country for permission to relocate back to England. And because they haven't done that, then they're at risk of being sent back. And therefore, they have to then try and persuade the English court that they shouldn't be sent back. Uh, for a number of reasons and we call them defences, but most of them are just, they're not technically defences, they're just features that the court can use.
1: We've done a number of podcasts on family law and the overriding sentiment is that there's a huge amount of naivety about the law and the fact that you simply can't pick up your child and move them to another country. You, You mentioned there the fact that really, if you're going to make plans to do that, you ought to be making that application in your own country. That's naivety that people just don't understand the the, the legal process.
2: I I think there's, yeah, there's two parts to that. Sometimes it's it's an ignorance of the law and there's an assumption that, and again, without appearing to be sexist, because it's not intended to be, that the mother thinks, these are my children and therefore we are one. Uh, And I've certainly had those conversations with some of my clients. That's the first part. The second part is they they are frightened about the prospect of going to the foreign court for permission to relocate because they don't believe they're going to get a fair go because the other parent is a is a national of that country and will be preferred so so they tend to if i ask i'd, I'd rather not ask because i know i think i know what the answer is and that's probably the most common but the bond with the mother and the child they can't conceive of not being together.
1: What happens if there are consequences of the return to the home?
2: And and actually going
1: back would would have a negative impact on the child and the parent?
2: Well, the first thing is most countries now, it is actually a criminal offence to abduct a child. So certainly is here. So when I act for the abducting parent, the very first thing that we get down as an agreement uh, if the child is going to be returned, the court will insist on, or certainly the abducting parent will insist on, that there are no criminal proceedings being encouraged uh, in the other country. Uh, and because that is an immediate consequence, and the judge does not want the mother arrested at the airport and the child handed over to the father. So we have a certain rules that we have to do. And of course, the other issues is how are we going to live when we're there, because we're not going to be living as a family unit. So we have to look at the financial and housing aspects of of the return. It's called in a very euphemistic term, a soft landing. The judge, even if they're minded to return because the abducting parent hasn't found a defence, they want to have a soft landing for the the children when they get back. So they're very clear about how it's all going to happen. And then it's over to you, foreign country judge, because I've done my bit and that's how the judges look at it.
1: And we were talking before we started recording, what's happening here is that the child has just become a pawn in whatever the adult dispute is, it's not their fault that they've been abducted.
2: No, and and I think that every parent is genuine in my view about what they think is best for the children, it just doesn't sometimes match Uh, and therefore when you've got that situation you just have to Find who is going to be the judge of what is the best for these children in the long term and all the Hague Convention is saying is which country is going to be that judge and so if it's if you're allowed to stay in England then there's still going to be an argument about with whom the children should live what are the contact arrangements if the children are returned then it's where are they going to live and what are the contact arrangements? We're just sorting out the arena for that or the forum.
1: You've touched on this a little bit, but I really want to explore that cultural challenge because you've talked about the fact that perhaps in England, people might regard English law as being fair. Cultural differences are wrapped up in all of this as well,
2: Derek. Mm, Absolutely. And, And this applies, I think, in my view, anywhere in the world. Because if we if we look at England, if you've come from a Muslim background or a Jewish background, those two communities have basic rules about how you live your life and whatever the English laws say you can and can't do, it may be very different in the community that you live. And that's the same abroad. So the most recent case I've had involved Kazakhstan, which has a 2 million Chechen community within it. and. My client was Chechen, and we were very concerned that if she was returned to Kazakhstan, she would be uh, at the risk of an honour killing and and certainly at risk that the children who are quite young would be removed from her, because culturally, that's the Chechen way. We had a Kazakh lawyer tell us, quite rightly, that all people in Kazakhstan are subject to Kazakh law. But that's not what happens in the real world, in the real community. I was disappointed in that case because I wasn't allowed to bring in cultural experts about how, in this instance, women's lives in the Chechen community is very different to what the Kazakh lawyer's description of of life in Kazakhstan is. But it can be applied to the the Roma community in, in Eastern Europe or anywhere where you have a significant cultural or ethnical non-indigenous community. You have to take that into account, in my view, otherwise you're not sending back to the country, you're sending back to the community. We've got quite a specific
1: case that we can explore as well, which is around Ukraine, because you've got a huge amount of displacement, but there's complications now around if children were to return who've who've been brought to the UK. Can you explain a bit more about that, Derek?
2: The basic rule for the Hague Convention is that his habitual residence, what is the child's habitual residence at the time that they were wrongfully removed or wrongfully retained in the other country? And the Ukraine war has highlighted some of the difficulties because we've just had a case where a child was removed under the schemes to England. But after five weeks, the mother wanted to go back to Ukraine with the child. Father, in this instance, was English. So he objected and he sought to keep the child in England. But the judge decided that because the Ukraine child had only been here five weeks. His habitual residence was still in Ukraine, so it was a wrongful retention. But it's very settled law now in England that after a while, if that had been three months or four months, that child habitual residence would have changed from Ukraine to England, and therefore the Hague Convention won't apply. And of course, that was relating to April and um, five weeks. So we're well past that now. So virtually every child that's here from Ukraine, their habitual residence has now moved to England. And therefore, any left behind parent won't be able to use the Hague Convention. I mean, many parents may have settled down, got jobs, got new relationships even. And the children, you know, they're 14, 15. They may not want to go back to Ukraine. And there isn't much that the left behind parent can do about it.
1: Where's the line in the stand with regard to what the child wants to do? Here's a scenario, as you say, child of 13, 14 may choose that they want to remain in the UK. Where's that line in the sand? How can you
2: accommodate that? It's interesting because when you ask me what's changed over the time I've been doing it, and actually my second case, when two boys were being sent back to to Australia but they tried to open the doors of the plane on the taxiing runway and and the fl- pilot wouldn't fly them everybody else had gone home thinking it was over and they were stuck in the airport with the police and no one to look after them that was the start of the the voice of the child because in those days in 1995 it wasn't normal that the children had a had a voice of any description in the proceedings but certainly now if they're of an age of seven, eight upwards, then almost invariably, they're, at least their views are going to be sought. And so the voice of the child is very important now. Now, if they're seven, their reasons have to be sensible ones. They can't just talk about holidays or ice creams because they're only seven. They don't have the intellectual ability. But when you get to a 13-year-old, uh, and, and children develop very differently, so you you can have a A nine-year-old going on 12 and a 12-year-old going on nine. Their views are very important, but still not determinative. However, if the judge says they're of an age and maturity that their views are valid, then they have to factor that into their decision making. But we're still the adults. Uh, And of course, it's more difficult if they were 15 and then said, well, I don't care what you can say, judge, I'm not going. That creates a different problem. But certainly the court will know what that child wants to do. Uh, And the other issue you've got is sibling separation, because you may have two different children from two different parents or a child born in one country. And while you've been here, you've had another child. And then you have to factor in whether it's right to separate the the children. That plays heavily on the judge's mind, I can tell you that.
1: Which leads me rather neatly into morality. Of all the subjects that we covered on the podcast and we've talked about divorce, we've talked about relationship breakdown, (laughs) we've talked about domestic abuse. Mm. This is a really, really difficult topic and it's so much more subjective.
2: Yeah, well I think there's two parts to that as well as ever. There's less morality in the Hague Convention application as it's strictly looked at because it's not meant to decide the welfare issues for a child. The court is not here to decide you're a better parent or you're a better parent. It's there to decide where was the child habitually resident? Was that child wrongfully removed at that time? If so, we're sending them back unless a defence can be found, in which case we won't send them back. But that doesn't determine that mum and dad were bad or good or whatever. So there isn't any morality in it. And except, of course, the criticism of that approach is it's too technical. There is, what about the child in all of this? And certainly one of the criticisms I have is sometimes a child is sacrificed at the altar of consistency to return a child when you think that's not really doing. Because if we don't return the child, then we're going to open the floodgates. Everybody's going to argue welfare. But actually, is that such a bad thing, is my view? Because this is supposed to protect children. It's not to send them back come hell or high water. And so I think the morality in the strict sense is not there, but morality is subjective. We try to avoid morality. <laughs> we'll leave that for the we'll leave that for the press.
1: And a final sort of thought from me, Derek, you've obviously been involved in this area of law for a long time. What do you see that might change over the next sort of maybe five, ten years in this space?
2: I would hope that there is a bit more thought about the welfare issues for a child. Because of the breakup of the relationships, housing and the economics of how do I live if I return back to that country is the biggest thing that causes me a headache. I think when I'm arguing to return or, or keep because... 20, 30 years ago, international marriages, it was related more often than not to wealthy people because only wealthy people had jobs abroad and, and such like. You know, some of the people I now represent make doors for livings. They're just ordinary people and they don't have money to be able to support themselves and then for a period of time uh, an, an estranged wife and children. So the economics are, we can't find you a house. We can't find you the money. And I think something's got to be done about it. If that is going to be important, then we need to address it. And it's at the moment, it's a bit of a struggle, to be honest, about, you know, we're sending you back. But where are you going to live? Um, nowhere. Um, and he can't afford to provide me with one. And there isn't a benefit system. So the judge decide, I'm not going to send you back because that would be intolerable. Um, So that has to be addressed in my view.
1: We can leave morality to the press, as you suggest, and the law is as it is, pending any sort of changes that might happen over the course of the next few years. But it really feels as though there is a move to put the child at the centre of this rather than it being the adult.
2: I think that's absolutely right, particularly say in England, we call it the Children Act because it's the child that's got the rights, it's not the Parent Act. So I often say to both parents, if I can, the child has a right to see both parents. And it is decided and normally true that they will grow up as better adults if they have a good relationship with both parents. So the child's rights are what the parents should be trying to protect so they should encourage contact between each other and try to work together between each other because they're going to have a successful outcome of a child um at the end of uh, into adult life so so it's difficult for them at the time but they should be trying to enforce the rights of their children to see their parents uh, because that is the only way forward at the end of the day Married or not, separated, because they've got children, they're going to have a lifetime of some connection with each other through that child. And that child deserves to have a stress-free upbringing. However, and he, and to be honest, whether you're five or you're 25, it has an impact on you when your parents separate and their job is to minimize that.
1: An interesting final thought, Derek. Uh, We've run out of time, so we'll uh, we'll leave it there. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast and and really interesting to hear
2: your insight. So
1: thank you very much indeed for joining.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure, David.
1: The Today's Family Lawyer podcast is available on your preferred podcast provider. It's also available on todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk. My thanks to Derek. Thank you for listening and we'll see you again soon.
0: You're listening to the Today's Family Lawyer podcast the leading source of daily news and insight for family law practitioners in England and Wales. Sign up to our free weekly newsletter at todaysfamilylawyer.co.uk and subscribe to hear all the latest news and views from across the family law sector. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.